Welcome to Coastal Front. Join us each week as we sit down with the movers and shakers of Vancouver to discuss stories of business, politics, accomplishment, and failure. Our aim is to keep you dialed into what matters most in our city. Now, here's your host, Andrew Johns. Great. On today's show, we are joined by one of Vancouver's most successful uh, restaurateurs and entrepreneurs. In an industry with uh, alarmingly high fail rates, she has found a formula of creating influential restaurants that possess both the longevity and community connection required to be considered prominent institutions in the city. She founded Medina Cafe, the Dirty Apron Cooking School, which I absolutely love, and the iconic Shambar restaurant. She has since taken her expertise outside of the industry and currently sits on the board of advisors for the Vancouver Economic Commission and the project director for Vancouver Innovation Capital. I'm super excited to join you. Have you join us today, Carrie? Carrie Schurmans. Thank you for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so let's uh, let's start by talking about being carbon neutral. Um, I'm going to dive right into it. You told me when we spoke yesterday before you came in that uh, Shambar. I believe, is the first carbon neutral restaurant in Vancouver. Is that right? Yeah, I think we were the first or second. There was a, a like a wood fire pizza place that may have beaten us to it. But <laughs> yeah, it, that was back in 2006, seven. When you became carbon yeah. neutral. So talk to me about how you became a carbon neutral restaurant, because I'm assuming you must be burning some kind of fuels to cook your food and that type of thing. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can dive into that for us. Yeah, it was like a step-by-step of going through every single aspect in and out of the restaurant. And a lot of it came up because of the way that food was being delivered to us. That when we first opened, we were getting these stacks of styrofoam containers for, for the seafood. And we just said no. Like we, I mean, we had to get to the point where we had the volume that they wanted our business. And we just said no. Like, can you switch to Rubbermaid containers? Um, which has been amazing because now all the suppliers have realized that it's far more economical to do that like our meat suppliers, um, and just said, you come here all the time anyway, so you can drop off and pick up because we're not going to accept styrofoam. Good for you. And then cardboard, like we just push back. Yeah. It just creates so much labor and waste for nothing. So this started off with uh, suppliers. Uh, so you mentioned seafood suppliers. They were bringing the seafood products, so I guess like scallops and fish and prawns in styrofoam containers that would like they were just going to be disposed of they just get yeah. thro- thrown out yeah and we and, just said no and, and so how do they do it now they you said they it's in like for example and, and, we um, bring mussels in fresh every day like yeah. they're harvested transport we have them the next day or the following day okay and so they come in rubbermaid containers like yeah. on ice so there's and, no health safety issues there's no difference r- from the styrofoam they're bringing them from a refrigerated truck right into a refrigerator so there's no this is the analogy of like a single-use plastic bag versus coming to the grocery store with yeah. your reusable bag yeah. well that's neat but I'm assuming that's not all you had to do to become carbon neutral that's probably just the beginning no probably it... the biggest win was the um, comp- food waste composting okay so there wasn't anybody doing separating food waste at that point yeah so it took a while it it's mostly... amazing to think that it wasn't that long ago no the composting was not no. even thought of by most people yeah, and a lot of, um, I mean, that the composting is really kind of what set me on the path to where I'm now, which is interesting, but yeah. um, realizing the tons of food waste that we're going to landfill and the methane that that creates and really understanding that. Yeah. Um, my dad's farmer, so he's like invented this composting contraption to take 
green waste into become organic fertilizers. So I understood the process well enough. Yeah. And uh, when we were able to go through the process, which took about a year to get it through the city, because even though there had this green initiative of being the greenest city 2020, the guys who were doing the bylaws, they're like, no, you're over by two feet. You can't have two bins. <laughs> so just going through the process with suppliers to say, okay, can you weld your bins so there's no leakage? Where can I find compostable heavy-duty garbage bags? Because you can't dump that amount of food waste in a big bin. Um, and going through that whole process, but it diverted like 33 tons a year. 33 tons. Well, you know what? Let's let's come back to this for a minute. I think for the average person like myself that doesn't work in the hospitality business, I, it'd be good to get a perspective of like how much volume you do. And like, I don't know if you can speak to any of those kind of uh, numbers, like the amount of food that you produce. I, like at Shambar, I mean, first of all, how many how many how many people can you serve in a night there on a on a Friday or Saturday night? Um, uh, we have two hundred and seventy seats, yeah. and we'll often do three turns. Three turns, and then in the summer we have an extra forty five seats on the patio. Wow! So if you think about, so let me just pull out like for example, like bottles of wine. Like how many bottles of wine do you go through in like a week? Well, dep- it depends how lush people are feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is, is it better? Don't, I guess imagine during Christmas time, people are a little more. Yeah, I don't even, yeah. I, I couldn't yeah. even give you a number of the number yeah. of bottles that we're going through. And then when those bottles are finished, I'm assuming they get recycled? Yeah, we have a, there's a collection service. Yeah. And then all of that, they, they collect and then co- get the deposits for it and give us a, a percent kickback for it. Yeah. If if you weren't conscious about the uh, food waste, if you were just a average restaurant trying to just make a buck and didn't really care about all that stuff, what do most restaurants do with their food waste? Because there's, I, it amazes me. I mean, I, I always eat all the food on my plate unless I really don't like it. Uh, I was told by my mom not to waste food, but uh, yes, I know I see, yeah, but I see a lot of. I go to, I eat a lot and I see people all the time leaving tons of food on their plate. Where does all that go in a typical restaurant? Uh, I mean it. It either goes into the garbage, but now the restaurants are required to separate the food waste so that it goes to compost. Well, that's finally a, a, yeah. a legislated yeah. rule. Is that a bylaw? Yeah. Or is it, oh, that's not a provincial rule. That's a Vancouver yeah. city. And when did that come into place? Uh, almost two years ago. But you guys have been doing this way before that. Yeah. yeah. And did you, did you have any influence in that? Uh, it was it was working through them to say your bylaws are preventing you from the intentions you're trying to set and just from right. going through becoming carbon neutral and realizing that that was the most significant impact yeah. that, it, that it made sense. Okay. So it was about providing them to say, okay, if you're going to do this, you better do it staggered. Yeah. And so it was working with people at the city to say, okay, who were the suppliers that you would need to do this? And what are the, what are the challenges around uh, like buildings? being able to say, yeah, we're okay to have compost because then you could have rodent issues if it's not got done correctly. So there's this, like you have to get rid of the levers and the barriers to entry for it to be successful. So right. it was, I mean, it was well thought out and staggered in the way. Now, are other municipalities, to best your knowledge, are they doing the same thing? Like if I go to a restaurant in Burnaby or in Richmond or North Shore, are they? do you know whether they're required to also compost? Or? No, I don't. Yeah. So before two years ago, again, going back to that restaurant who wasn't really concerned about food waste, environment, that type of thing, what would they do? They would just throw it in the garbage? Yeah. And okay. the, so that essentially that's going to landfill and then that's becoming your release. It's like, yeah. here's this great source of energy that you're just releasing as an emission. Yeah. So, I mean, the next step on that for um, 
for the food waste was realizing that where we were sending it or where it was going in North Vancouver, which was landscaping, so it was mm-hmm. turned into landscaping soil, um, that if the whole city went, like the economics of it is, ha- what if we have volume of all the restaurants, that there wasn't anywhere for it to go. Um, so there was talk of doing methane plant. Um, where would that be? Then how far would you have to travel? And you have to make sure that the cost for pickup isn't, and that whole process isn't higher than just putting it in the garbage to, right. to make sure. So it was a, like People a thoughtful, yeah. thoughtful process. So how does it work today at Shambar? You know, you get to the end of a night on a busy Saturday night, and there's all this food waste, and you've got these bins that you've had custom made. It, does the city of Vancouver come and pick it up for you, like no, curbside? No, it's contract suppliers. It's, oh, it's okay. Yeah, it's food. It's like waste. It, okay, so, so it's your res- it's on your responsibility. So yeah. you're required regulatory wise to to not allowed. You're not allowed to put it in the garbage, but it is on you to have it picked up and taken away. Yeah. Does the city regulate as to who picks it up or where it goes or what it's used for? Where it goes, but not what it's used for. And I uh. think the main issue is is what to do with that. Yeah. Um, and could that be an like there's a great opportunity for it to be a major energy source so Carrie what happens with your food your food waste where does it go um, uh, at the moment it's going to North Vancouver to nor- oh, to, yeah. for this landscaping yeah. okay yeah yeah but, um, so there's various locations in the city but a lot of it's going all the way out to Delta yeah and you going back to that number you gave about the amount of food waste that you save how much did you say that number was again 33 tons 33 tons yeah. a year I mean that's all your like your muscle shells, yeah. bones, trimmings. Like, so when we moved to the new location, a lot of doing the design for the new restaurant was how can we reduce not only the, the way that we receive food, yeah. but reduce waste. So we portion, and if we find, we, we'll track that if, if we find it's being thrown away a lot, there's extra, we'll reportion it okay. to account for that. And yeah. then we, receive, we, have, we built larger freezer and fridge space like our fridge is the size of a small apartment really so that uh, a supplier producer can come like we work with a a guy that brings tomatoes and he organizes them in ripeness by box so that he only has to come once a week rather than every day okay a lot of people don't have the space and so we're like well if we have the space we could cut down the amount of input output here and we we use everything like we make our own stocks so the amount of waste that we have is minuscule to to large restaurants our size yeah yeah you're not like a kfc which is everything's just getting shipped in and uh rectangular boxes and then open it up let's talk about shambar for a minute let's how let's get to do a plug for your restaurant pull up their website there ross so we can take a look i'm assuming you have some pictures on your website let's talk about the history of shambar you started you were one of the founders of shambar yeah nico and i started it in 2004 we'd been in vancouver a year we'd been living in sydney before that with a ski season in between in whistler being ski bums uh and we just we saw this opportunity there was all these amazing beautiful fine dining restaurants that were very conservative and quite elitist and then there was chain restaurants what had an incredible caliber of service for for chain restaurants compared to other places in the world and then a lot of ethnic foods and we felt that where there was a space to create like a really fun like fine dining quality and service but a really relaxed laid-back atmosphere where where could you go and educate yourself about food without feeling like I got to sit up straight use the right fork the music is boring and it looks like my grandma's living room in here (laughs) so how do we make this like fun and so the name Shambar um, comes from an old French phrase which means when the teacher leaves the room and all the kids go crazy oh really (laughs) 
so that was our whole start of like, how do we make it really fun? And being in Australia, the cocktail scene is really big. And so there's a lot of more kind of debauchery around like eating out that how could we make it more of a fun place to be? And at that time, it was really constrictive. Vancouver was definitely no fun city. And we, you know, coined, there was this book called Stanley Park that talked about this place called Crosstown. And we were in this no-go zone, like everybody considered us downtown east side. But we just didn't want to go in with the burn rate of Yale Town prices at that time. So we're like, okay, I went and looked at all the city development plans and saw what was happening. I'm like, within two years, there's going to be another 4,000 units within this area. So this is the spot. And also the the feature of the building, that it was like nice old European style, lots of brick and big fur beams, that it had character already. Yeah. Because most of the city is pretty shiny and new. Yeah. So let's make sure that all the listeners know where, if they want to go eat at Shambar, it's uh, it's just down from the SkyTrain station on uh, is it what is it which street is um, that? It's Beatty and Dunsmere. Be- Be- Beatty and Dunsmere. And it's the Stadium SkyTrain station. We're right there, right yeah. next door. Yeah. Uh, now you're in a new location. I'm I'm still going to call it new. I think you've been there a few few five years. years now. Yeah. Five years now. Has it been five years? Yeah. When, when did you first? When did Shambar first open? Two thousand four. So you opened your doors in two thousand four. You were just down like the same building, were you not? Just next down building. Yeah. Ne- next next door. building. Yeah. Okay. And and then what uh, precipitated moving from that building in the old location to the one you're in today? And we see some of the pictures. This is the, the the new location as we see here. Yeah. Which nice nice wood and lots of nice bright uh, bright lights. Um, what what made that? What, what was it that caused that move? Uh, we were approached by um, the owners of the who bought the building next to us, which used to be just for filming. Like I think they didn't keep up with their permits, so it was being used for for filming um like da vinci's inquest was filmed there so that crew was all around yeah uh when we opened which was <laughs> like nice to be part of that little history uh and they we were originally going to do another concept in there um i mean we already had most of the street so why not one more right <laughs> um and then things happened for us personally my dad was given a couple months to live and we just went wait a minute like what why are we why do we keep opening more and so it was more of a a personal reflection to say okay why do we keep opening new places and then realizing okay if you want to physically mess your ma- uh, like manifest your values in the world maybe this isn't the right tool it's not big enough but this is our livelihood and we love it and the culture of it is great and Nico's this is his passion and this is his art so we were like why don't we just do one thing really well so the move was more, if we go to a larger location, then we can afford to have somebody run the operations. And maybe we won't make more money, but we can have a life. And our kids were young. We have three kids. Right. And so all of that was happening at the same time, which really was, we're like, okay, let's go all in again and wow, hope this did. works. <laughs> so effectively, you moved, you upgraded, moved to locations. How, how many uh, seats did you have in your old restaurant versus this one? Uh, we had 80. 80. And now you're at two, 270. 270. So we doubled so the size. Big. Yeah. Doubled. Yeah. That's amazing. It's almost just actually more than tripled. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Good for you. And has it worked out well? Yeah. Yeah. Are you Thankfully, getting, getting, I'm more very time with your, getting more time with your boys? Yeah, and, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Good. You built the first location too, right? Like. Yeah. We did um, our own contracting for the first one. Like we family had and no, friends type Yeah. Thing, my right? dad came for, I was like, dad, I don't have anybody. My dad's a carpenter and builds homes. I'm like, there's nobody that I trust. Like I can't find anybody who has this like detail and, and care for, 
for the finishing details. Can you come and help? And so he was going to come for three weeks and help us out. It ended up being three months. He basically <laughs> helped us build the place. But he, all the tables that are in, most of the, well, all the tables in the restaurant he built. And so he just made more for the new restaurant. So that's it's a nice thing to like that's have something really cool. that he, he made. Yeah. Because he's such a perfectionist, which I totally appreciate. Was he involved in the second when you refit the second place, was he involved there too? No, it was a clear no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame him. Wow. Job, right? he, wow. he just kept saying, tell us when you're opening. And he came out, you know, a few days yeah. before. Yeah. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> well, that's really neat. One of the things I love to talk about when I get entrepreneurs like yourself in, in, in the studio here is to talk about how you got started. Because I think that it's a great, most of the time, it always seems to be a great story for budding entrepreneurs, people who are maybe struggling right now themselves and need that little bit of inspiration to keep going. And maybe we can help them also learn some lessons of things they shouldn't make. They can learn off of somebody else's. The best lesson to learn is off someone else's mistakes, right? Um, can you start off by telling us, like, what, like, how did this thing start at the very beginning? You and Nico, uh, your, is this your husband? Is yeah, I'm um, ex-husband now, yeah, but okay. we're, we're still and, in business and, yeah. and parenting and you, together. Okay, so before you had kids, yeah. you, you decided to start this up. Is that right? Yeah, right. it was more, I mean, initially I had this clothing line yeah. um, called Twice Shy. We were doing this organic clothing, and I'd come from Whistler. My background was marketing. I'd worked in corporate. I'd gone, like, I was hell-bent on getting to the corner office. Oh, yeah? And then got there and went, oh, <laughs> I don't know if I want to be here, actually. Yeah. Like, here's all these people that I, I wanted to be. Here's my, you know, power suit and designer shoes. And here's all these people making decisions against their own personal values, and they've got big houses, and what, and they don't see their friends or their family, and they're miserable. Yeah. And I I just went, I I don't know, this, is, this isn't what I thought it would be, or maybe I should have asked why I wanted to be here before I <laughs> went on this this route. Well, that's the journey you go down, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what you do in your typically early 20s and 30s to, yeah, so. Yeah, and I got, I ended up working for the city of Sydney when they went through a competitive tendering process. So all of the services were up against. And when you mentioned Sydney, are you talking Sydney, Australia? Sydney, Australia. Okay, Australia. And so we went, all of the services went through this competitive tendering process. And so I went around with consultants to every single service. So really got an understanding of the city and how it worked. And then became the marketing manager once those services were established as a as an entity um, owned by the city. So it was a corporation owned by the city. Mm. Um, they privatized their building services. Brilliant <laughs> way to fast track all the building that needs to be done for the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I became I ran the international film media for the Olympics, which was completely over my head, but managed to pull it off. Um, wow. And then was just that's when I was like, oh, I've I've moved so fast and learned so much that I, I think I need this amount of information experience just to integrate to figure out where I want to go next. Yeah. And thought that the perfect place to do that would be on a ski hill. So came to Whistler, which was going to be one season and turned into two. And then 9-11 happened and just everything changed. So we ended up moving to Vancouver. And Nico was really interested in in having his own restaurant, and I was like, I have all the business, marketing, everything that we need that you don't to do this. So let's open a restaurant, thinking, you know, I'll get it up and running for him, and then continue on. Yeah. So fifteen years and later. Fifteen years. Wow, <laughs> crazy. And was Nico with you when you were in Australia? Yeah. And yeah, we you met. You guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's so. So. You must have gone through some struggles at the beginning. Nobody, most people don't go into the restaurant business 
eyes wide open and know what they're getting into and uh, absolutely it, not yeah i mean we signed a lease uh-huh. and i'd written a business plan i just locked myself away for two months and just did the business plan and got it because everyone i mean i think the best advice i got was don't ever think you can't fail so i was i didn't really know the industry i'd worked in a bar at, at when I was at university. Yeah. And so all I was like, I, I need to know all the places you can fail, which in a restaurant is thousands, really. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. My I was mom, like, I really need to understand it. My mom worked as an accountant it. in the end, for most of her career as an accountant in the hospitality business working for restaurateurs. And the fail rate was very, very high. Very high. I see a note here that you, you start off with a $5,000 pre-approved credit card to get things going. Yeah, so we... Can you talk about we, that? Well, we signed the lease. <clears throat> I had the business plan, yeah, and then I went and like hit it to raise the money that we needed to open the restaurant. Um, the banks were like, no chance. Like, you don't own anything. You're young, and I think yeah. at the time, it's not the case now. Restaurants and garden centers were blacklisted, so you know, bank after bank, they're like, no, no chance. Um, so hit it and was able to raise the money um, privately which is like such an interesting process because it's like, why do people invest in restaurants? Like yeah. it's either ego or greed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but considering like one in five fail yeah. within but I you think, managed two to years. Do it. Yeah, we yeah. managed to pull it off. I mean, it was... Did you have a lot of investors or just a couple like really too, key... Way too many. Way too many. Like we had everything from 2,000 to 50,000. Really? Yeah. How much does Shambar look like today compared to its origination? Like when the first, if you look at the first year, as far as the menu's concerned, its uh, culture, its personality, like wh how much has the restaurant changed? I mean, the the original like mission statement and yeah. vision still holds today, which oh, yeah? what is, is that? You can it read it on the website. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's more that, I mean, the essence of it still remains of what we intended to do and the the heart of it and yeah. moving to the new location, the heart just got bigger. Yeah. Um, but it was more about what we intended to be and 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 navigate through, even though it's it's strange to be in a position where we were the ones that were the innovators and now we're an institution. Mm -hmm. um, and accepting that is not always easy because you're like, oh, actually people want us to be consistent uh, the food has evolved tremendously. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's in the style of people eat. People don't eat so heavily. Right. Um, but the flavor profile, Nico has like, I mean, it's like his language and art is the, the the spices and flavors that he combines and uses. It's like these 11 different kind of secrets. Yeah. They're not so secret, but that he does of the way he cooks. But it's about having uh, respect for French process. And then an influence of Middle Eastern and North African flavors. And most people said, oh, and this will never fly. Like, this menu's too bold. People are really bland. They just want West Coast. And yeah. we said, we don't think so. Yeah. Well, you've proven wrong. Now, what would you do if someone had never heard of Shambar before, they're new to Vancouver, and uh, they heard about this restaurant, how would you describe the restaurant in short term of like, what's... Because people say, oh, is it Italian? Is it French? Is it uh, Asian fusion? What, what would you describe in kind of layman's terms as Shambar as a type? Where would you fit yourself? I mean, we are so intent on being specifically vague. 
it's like we didn't want to be slotted into this fusion French. So I can't find like all these names are like continental. I mean, we put Belgian because Nico's Belgian. Yeah. Because there was no Belgian restaurant in Vancouver, and it was a way to get like a category (laughs) in the Yellow Pages at the time. But we took it off quickly because a lot of um, French people were really upset when they would come, and it wasn't Belgian enough, and we'd get Flemish hate mail, which I had to get translated. Really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's so funny. Um, But, yeah, definitely, like, a French base, but it's about the – with bold flavors. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like the place that locals take visitors. It is. I mean, it's a great restaurant. Uh, My wife and I have been there many times. So let's talk a bit about the menu. Um, How much does your menu change? There's usually something changing every three weeks. Okay. So we're committed to using... Is your menu online, by the yeah. way? Is it? Yeah. So we the new location is expanded because we are open for breakfast all the way through dinner. So we're open from eight in the morning till sometimes two at night. Yeah. When, um, did, you, when did you get into breakfast? Uh, well, we were in... Bre- like the Medina was basically Shambar by day. So it was one oh. kitchen that cooked for Medina yeah. by day and then Shambar by night. It was a shared kitchen. And then... Uh, moving into the new location, it was a prerequisite of taking that lease because we were the anchor tenant. Oh, I see. So, so they want to know that there's somebody, there's a place open available for customers to come and dine. Yeah, like yeah. if you've got a law firm above, they want to know that they can come Do a have lunch today. there. So that yeah, was a, like yeah. a, a bonus for yeah for coming into the building. The reason I was asking that question, I'd be curious to know if it's, if it, I mean, I guess it sounds like you've been doing breakfast since day one, but uh, I remember when McDonald's got into the breakfast game. Um, now, this is going back quite a while ago, but when I, I actually worked at McDonald's uh, when I was in like, grade nine. And I also used to study about it, read about it a lot in business school. And it really upped their profitability because they had all these sunk costs already. They had the lease, they had the staff, they had all the equipment. And then they get into the, and they get into the breakfast game and all of a sudden it, it went up big time. And it did the same with that. It sort of happened with Tim Hortons. Um, so... Um, I don't know if you can speak to that at all. At yeah, all it's or not, not so but. much the case in for our style of restaurant. It's not? Okay. No, and it was more that we were required to do that, and I don't know that we'd have to anymore, but now it's 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 it was a slow build. It First, was, because yeah. people didn't associate Shambar with breakfast, breakfast and lunch, yeah. so we weren't top of mind, so there was a lot of work to trans, like to get people to yeah. think of us for that way. Once people come, they come back, which is great. Um, but the amount, like for a McDonald's versus uh a sit-down service restaurant. I mean, for instance, Shambar has 150 staff. So the you amount really? of, for the amount of seats and food and revenue versus the number of, la- the labor that you need, you have for a restaurant our size, you need a base staff. So the smaller the restaurant, the less the base staff. So your burn rate is much higher to be opening for breakfast, lunch. So if you're not busy, it can take you down. Yeah. This has got to be a really tough business to keep a profitable operation going, i got to imagine. The yeah, the profit, business. like there's, I mean, there's so many items. There's so many ways you can lose money. Yeah. Um, I think like having a business background is helpful and just, yeah. and also having that experience to know how to figure things out. But we have like an integrated um, inventory cost control system. So for every dish, it's everything's measured and weighed. And so we get like a top like a here's the difference in cost report based on what's sold what you should have when you do your inventory so we can look and say oh this thing must be we can say this is being overportioned or the cost of this has gone high so we have to rework it Mm -hmm. so that's a constant and it's more about creating a a dashboard of the information that 
would probably keep me up at night if I didn't have. <laughs> Speaking of dashboard, has technology become a component to the restaurant industry? Like as far, I, mean, I remember years ago, it was like when Squirrel had their, I don't even what call those, uh, their, their systems to like, you know, yeah. run your bill and whatnot. But I see a lot of restaurants are now using iPads and whatnot, but is is any is technology had any influence in your, yeah the, your, unfortunately your the technology for that would make it really good yes. is not there yet because oh. the locations aren't specific enough so for instance um i mean having the pos systems and not having to write out manual bills obviously saves a lot of time and probably is responsible for getting another turn of business in mm -hmm. but the um there is technology. We, we really push back because for the experience of it, we didn't want to have iPads. Yeah. And we didn't want like a blue light screen walking around the room and it just didn't make sense. Like how sure. do you, there's something about having an analog experience in life. Yeah. And people are so surrounded by screens and technology that we push back on it until it's there. Yeah. But there is ways, like for instance, if we have five tables and they're all numbered and you pull two together there's payment systems where you can say if you designate this table then people can just like tap the barcode and pay the bill oh wow but our tables are moving all the time right. and so how do you know which tables what and yeah. belongs to what table and people's like oh can i sit over there and so we'd have to manually update like there's just no way right so until the location can get perfect then yeah. that we can't move to that technology what about the back end of the restaurant like as far as maybe more uh tech like technological changes with respect to like equipment and that kind of, i used to be a ceramics technician at milestones uh during college years i don't know if you know what that is but people would call me a dish pig but i put it on my resume as a ceramics <laughs> technician i had no idea what you were saying yeah. at that point yeah. Yeah. i've never heard of that you ever heard of that one really i was the only one that came up with that it looked great on my resume because i'd always get asked i'm gonna re-advertise that and see yeah. how many people Ceram show up for yeah, work it might that. be easier than getting dishwashers <laughs> Uh, but has there been any changes in that in that sense as far as uh, um, actually Ross you were, were you the one who was telling about the Sioux was that the, the Sioux uh, cooking system were you the one telling me that oh like Sioux Sioux de Vie Sioux de it's Sous when you cook in plastic but we're just oh. like we really don't want to put food in plastic and then cook it like it just the yeah. thing is you have such good control yeah. and so you can create this but there's something nice about like searing it yeah creating like browning something sure. and what you can get in whether it's salt or spices or something like there's something yeah. in that that adds more flavor rather than putting everything yeah. i mean it's like a plastic crock pot almost. right yeah and we just were like no like yeah. we just don't want to it just it's going against our values of yeah. sustainability to go through that much plastic yeah. How does your how are your grills fired? Are they they wood fired? Are it's they... it's propane, like propane. it's LNG, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So and um, we uh, in part of that composting thing, there was yeah. this um, initiative called Cow Power, and it was to try and get um, dairy farmers to build these methane plants, and they'd set up all the financing for it, and then that we could add our food waste, and then all of the green waste and food waste would become um, green gas. Mm. So then Fortis had said, well, if you can go and get businesses to pay more to prove that they're willing to pay for green gas, then we'll switch over to that. And the, the timing just didn't work out, unfortunately, mm. but that would, have been, that would have been a good option. Yeah, well, well, maybe some point in the future. The world is still at early stages of this well, transition. Yeah, Germany is doing it. They're taking they? their renewable energy and, and using existing infrastructure to transport green gas. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's go back to your, your, you mentioned you employ 150 people. 
um, and running a restaurant business, can we can we go back to that listener who's maybe running their own restaurant right now or thinking about getting into it and talk about some of the common mistakes that you see other people making or mistakes that you made that you might want to help enlighten people on like, hey, if you're going down this path, change, go this direction because going down that path isn't going to be the right way to go. Cash flow. Cash flow. Yeah, I think. Are cost controls really important? Yeah, they are because there's so many. It's it's easy to slow bleed out, which is, I mean, relates back to cash flow. But uh, so many people go into the restaurant industry because they're so passionate about food or they're a chef and they don't have business experience. And either, if you don't have it, at least learn, self-teach because that's what you end up doing mm-hmm. um, so that you can at least hire good people to do that for you. Um yeah, having having a really good handle on on financial management is mm-hmm. key. The, I'm sure we all had had this experience where you know, like that that local restaurant somewhere that just constantly is changing owners and names, and then there's one like two blocks down the street, and it's been an institution like Shambar for years. And I've always wondered, like, what differentiates that? Like, what they're location wise, maybe they're maybe not even two blocks, maybe they're just like two, literally two units over. You've got a restaurant like Shambar who manages to stay in business and run a good restaurant for years. And then, you know, a couple blocks down the street, you got another place and just constant turnover. What is your observation of someone who's clearly been able to be successful in this business that makes you different from so many of your so-called competitors? I think it's like concept execution. Like it's all mm-hmm. about the execution. Because I could say to somebody here, here's my business plan, here's design, like here's everything. And it's all about the execution. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I would say the largest contribution to our success has been the culture, creating a culture. Like if people are going to spend that many hours a day at work, then they should enjoy who they work with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that um, shifted by having a tip pool, by um, having ethics and core values that we ask people to read and sign when they come on as an employee to say, like, if this this is how we are here. And if this doesn't fit with you, it's fine. But Well, this is really neat. So can we talk about those two things a little bit? Let's talk about the, this this values uh, ethics that you have people sign. Can you talk a little bit more in detail about what that is? And do, do most of the restaurants do that? I don't imagine they do. I don't think so. I mean, it's on our, it's in the um, about us section. Uh-huh. Um, this is kind of, I guess, get, like, speaking to the idea of culture, this is a really a way for you to ensure that you're setting a standard for anybody coming in new to understand about what, like, what's important to you. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of putting this down on paper came from when we moved to the new location. Yeah. Because we went from having these three businesses with like 60 staff and under. So we had a total of around 150 staff between the three businesses. But when you put them all in one, you're maxing out your communication. Like military, as yeah. soon as it's 150, or Mennonite communities, they split it into 75. So how do we deal with this maxing out? So a lot of that was making use of technology for the communications of how to inform people about what's going on and mm-hmm. reduce the amount of what when do I work, like making it all available to people. Um, I happen to be studying ethics. <laughs> so a lot of it came of like if we're, you know, technology is driving us, but what we actually need to do is raise the ethic. So a lot of it was just my personal like learning and journey that took me to this of realizing that we have so many people coming from so many different backgrounds and they're 
like indoctrination of growing up or money or anything, is that the way do we define things are completely different and what words mean to us. So it was about saying what 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 do we believe in like what are our values and then also saying this is this is how we define each of these words so that we're all on the same page okay and it made it much easier because now people self-manage each other because it gives them tools to say like i don't feel respected when or they can draw on this to actually so the amount of like babysitting drama really went down because people have something to say this isn't a rule like you have rules in a business, yeah. but these are kind of like guidelines, guidelines. that give yeah. you. I love it. This is what we're looking at right now. So you've got respect, generosity, excellence. Uh, what else do you have on there? Honesty and integrity. So yeah, it's great. It gives a guideline. I mean, it's, it's a great way to sort of set a standard so that people showing up new know what to expect and know how they conduct themselves. Yeah, and it's not even for, I mean, it's more for us internally because it gives a roadmap to, for people to make decisions by. Yeah. And it really enables people to like be empowered to make their own decisions without having to ask you. Yeah. So saying, if I'm, if I'm not in the restaurant 24 seven, it's much easier to, for your presence to be the directive. Like it's clear what your expectations are. And if right. you're not going to be there every second of the day, how do you, how do you keep that going? Yeah. So it was more of how do you scale the culture without having to be the culture. Yeah. Because once so would you, you say this is a, an important part of what's helped you be successful? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about. You also mentioned tip pool. Yeah. Now, again, for people who haven't worked in the restaurant industry, and this is something that I think is a really good topic to get into because, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this about like how much people should tip, and I can give you my view in a minute. But um, let's start off by telling what what did you do before tip what what is a tip pool and what did you do before and why is a tip pool better for your culture yeah, now um so i mean in us we've been living in australia there's no tipping there people are paid more by the hour okay um the cost is basically passed on in it's far more expensive to eat out there because you're paying for that yeah um but where they are geographically their produce is way cheaper than ours because mm-hmm. obviously they can grow food all year round and yeah. they don't freeze over for most of the year. Yeah. And also the, uh, so much of our local food is gone because the cannabis industry has taken over all the greenhouses. So we're having a really hard time really? keeping our commitment to using local produce. I had no idea. Yeah, it's it's like a little lack of consideration or... <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So this must have been a big change for you guys as cannabis has become legalized, I guess, for about a year and a half now. So is that that's really made a big difference on huge, like we, I mean we <clears throat> we'd made a commitment to using local seasonal produce and we can't get it. So where are you getting your food from now? Wherever we can get it, as close as we can. But close, like yeah. sometimes it's coming from Mexico, so you're like, well, that what's the carbon footprint of that yeah, versus sure. being able to get something that's coming from Delta? Yeah. So Amazing. it's a. It's interesting because I've noticed that I noticed that Whole Foods, which of course is now owned by Amazon. Um, was, I thought, doing a pretty good job of continuing to showcase or offer local produce, uh, vegetables and fruits when they're seasonally open. And I've noticed less and less of it now. And I didn't, I was wondering if it's just Whole Foods now kind of making that move towards, you know, being able to use your Amazon app and you just get your strawberries from Oxnard, California, where they all get grown and yeah, mass quantity. I mean, or maybe it's also a function of they don't have the supply anymore because the cannabis business, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, th- I would say it's more 
it's more that that's just not their MO. Yeah. I mean, Whole Foods was a place where they would have a lot of interesting produce and the people that worked there really cared about yeah. finding and sourcing. And so the whole, that yeah, the whole business, the way that was set up and you, there's, it's, there's hardly any organic food there. Yeah. The amount of produce available is like sometimes you go in there and there's nothing in there. Yeah. But Whole Foods was a place where chefs would often go, like Nico would often go to Whole Foods and find interesting things because they would bring in not your basic banana, tomato, yeah. potato, yeah. orange. like, And they would bring in really interesting things that he could try out and yeah. play with. And that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I know some uh, some reports have come out recently that the prices at Whole Foods, generally speaking, have dropped. Um, I know bananas in particular. <clears throat> Pardon me, but it's come at a cost for sure. Uh, of less, uh, less uh, um, diversity, definitely. I don't. I mean, I still shop with the, my wife and I try and go to the farmers market as much as we can. Do you guys ever shop shop at the farmers market, or do you? Personally, yeah, 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 yeah. But I guess as a restaurant, you can't really do that. You gotta. I no. guess you could go d- direct to some of the farmers. Like when, it, for yeah, example, we go direct have, to farmers. Like if you have kale, like kale kind of grows year round. It's pretty hardy. Yeah. So if I'm eating kale off of a plate of food at Shambar, is it's it local? Prob- it's local. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys are, that's a big, like our that's greens, big for you guys? Like our salad greens and everything. We have this awesome supplier, Farmer Paul, who never wears shoes. And Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I want to spend some time talking about your suppliers because I always love hearing uh, the stories. And I'd love to get a sense of like when when you're running a, because uh, we all seen those TV shows like the, uh, the, the the Iron Chef or one of these shows where some restaurateur is like, they're, they're, they're falling apart and somebody comes in and whips them into shape. It's like the... Uh, like the the um the turnaround story right the, the makeover the, the makeover that kind of thing um so you've got a lot of staff and you're gonna have i'm assuming i'm assuming your busiest nights are your friday saturday nights do you do some kind of like pep talk with the team before things every day are, really just pre-shifts so before every shift yeah. what do you call it pre-shift pre-shift it's like this Can, is what we've got this is a special this is what we're out of uh these people are coming in tonight yeah like it's a full here, this really? is what you need to know for the evening. Um, you know, large group. This is what's happening with them. They're staying late, so there's a full a brief every night. Um, so cool before each shift. Really, day, day and night. Yeah, yeah. And who does that? You have a couple of. Like, It'll be the floor manager. Floor that's manager. Usually led, and then the people that are kind of like a bar manager will talk about what's going on for them. The sommelier will say, "Hey, we've got this great new wine. It'll pair well with this. If you have anybody who loves this." these type of people because they get to know the customers pretty well to know what they like like if so-and-so comes in make sure you tell them that we have this right so you have a regulars that you kind of start to get to know um what are you best known what's shambar best known for do you have anything that you're you kind of you know people in the street know yeah if you want to try this you got to go to shambar i mean the muscles muscles. are like because they're so like we we go through like 200 pounds we 200 pounds of muscles a day a day? So we get like the best fresh. I mean, the issue for us is um, longevity of that is a little bit unknown because we have to get muscles for wherever there's a cold current. Because right. as soon as it warms up, you get that red, yeah, the tide, red tide, then that yeah. diosin, and that's when people get sick. Yeah. So you, it has to always be coming from cold water. So will muscles be around forever? Probably not. But mm-hmm. there's places like there's a place near San Juan where we get them where there's a consistent cold current so yeah. that you're you're guaranteed that. Yeah. I mean, the our, the the only things that have been on our menu since the start are the mussels, the milfrit, because that's a very traditional Belgian yeah. dish, and we couldn't take it off now. People would freak out. Uh, a are lamb, your fries good? 
Yeah. How do you I mean, they're fries? all hand cut. We really? had to work with Alberta Potato Board to make sure that the potatoes that come to us are all from the same area yeah. because otherwise the sugar content's different and some will be like raw and some will be really floppy by the time you cook them. Yeah. So to get that consistency, we've had to do a lot of work for as we've scaled in volume. So where do your to potatoes come from? Alberta. Whereabouts? Uh, mostly like Tabor. Really? Tabor area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Have you, do you ever go out to your suppliers' locations and see where your food's coming from? Yeah, and like either mussels or you know, be, we worked. When who's the, money, who's your main supplier for mussels? Um, we have a company near San Juan's that yeah. we get from, and Can then we, we have a. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the name of them right now. Yeah. I should. Um, <laughs> you, well, you mentioned earlier there was a a, a farm in, uh, the, for your kale. I think you were talking about. Or something. Well, all of our greens, greens. yeah, our Where they farmer Paul guy. Farmer Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows who he is. <laughs> Shoeless guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, That's awesome. And I, yeah, I mean, it's we 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 move around suppliers depending on the season. Yeah. Um, but it's been, I mean, that's probably one of the, the, the most pleasurable part of having a restaurant is being able to get to know the people yeah. that are providing what you're serving, because there's so much that goes into what goes on your plate. And if we could get people to just pause and appreciate, like, wait a minute, there's like all these ingredients that came from somewhere that someone grew yeah. and that what it took to get here and then prepared and all the different ways that you prepare each part of your dish. Yeah. I mean, going, we did a collaboration with uh, Laughing Stock um, before they sold, and just to go there and do harvest with them and they're be like the beautiful land and get a sense of place of yeah. where what we have on the menu comes from is that's probably one of the greatest. Wow. Like bonuses of having a restaurant. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Let's take a look at the menu here. What are some of your more popular menu items? So maybe we'll start off with. I'm going to be getting hungry here with uh, going through this. So um, you've got appetizers. So what are, you, what are kind of your most popular appetizers? Uh, at the moment, um, we have a veal stuffed calamari. That's probably, stuffed, okay. that's delicious. Yeah. Um, our, our menu's changing all the time. Yeah. Like we'll have the same protein, but what it's with is changing. So it's very, it's moving seasonally. Okay. So other than the... Um, the mulfri, like the mussels and fries, and the tagine, pretty much everything else is what changing is all the time. What is tagine? It's um, a Moroccan lamb shank that's like in, in like a lot of beautiful flavors of yeah. like cinnamon and figs, and it's it's served with kusu. It's a very traditional Moroccan dish. Where do your lambs come from? Australia. From Australia. Yeah, we've tried so hard to be able to get them locally, but we we can't get the volume or the consistency in size. So there, it's a shank. It's like yeah. a piece of a leg. Yeah. And and how how many? Then this is gonna be a dumb question. But do you get four off of a lamb with those, or do you get two? With like with a shank. Uh, two. Two. Yeah. Like the back leg. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How and many then of those all the would you sell are... in a week? Uh, I don't know. I remember going to was it called that, that Greek restaurant up on uh, in the West End there, Stephanos. Steph, what, yeah. And I remember asking the server there once, and apparently they actually. That's such one of their most popular items is the the lamb shank. They make so many of them they have to actually cook them off site and then bring them in because they have they're like there's they go through so many. Yeah, yeah we serve it in the tagine dish, but there's no way we have the oven space to cook them all because you the tagines you have so to soak in water. We put we cook them in big trays. Oh, 
Because there's no way you can. Yeah. But they're like, they're delicious. They're cooked for six hours. Yeah. And when they're out, they're out. Like we only cook a certain amount a day. Yeah. Who's your chef? Nico. Nico's. Yeah. Yeah. He creates all the dishes. I think he's maybe let two dishes come on from other chefs that really? have worked for us. Yeah. Yeah. We have a great guy right at the moment, Curtis, who's who's our sous chef and yeah. kind of running the show in there. He's great. He's great. I know this is going to be a silly question, but I mean, I've heard a lot of it. What is a sous chef? Can you explain to the average listener what a sous chef is versus a chef? Is it the same thing? Uh, it is like it's your next in line. Sous chef is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have like a head chef. You have head chef and your sous chef. Okay. And a lot of places have executive chef, and that's usually the person that's keeping together all the costs. Like in a hotel, you'll have an executive chef, and they're the bean counter and making sure all the costs are in line and overseeing everything. So they're doing the like operations of the kitchen. Okay. So Nico's your your head chef, and then Mm -hmm. who's your sous chef? Uh, Curtis. Curtis is. Okay. Um, What about uh, Medina Cafe and Dirty Apron? Do you want to quickly touch on those two? Uh, locations are those uh, you guys you helped start them are you still involved yeah with them? I mean we co-founded them with yeah. staff at the time uh, Robbie was a server for us single dad and was looking for a cafe and we were trying to do a wine shop next to Shambar but somebody had their LRS license in like a week before us so we couldn't it has to be within half a kilometer oh. so at um, International Village the Crosstown Liquor they had theirs in just before us so oh. we couldn't do that yeah. and so we said you know we have this space right here why don't we why don't you do your cafe here yeah and then Dave had was our sous chef and wanted to teach yeah he was really passionate about teaching and had he you know wanting to have a family and just not wanting to do the the evening hours which when we first opened Shambar were a lot longer yeah we we saw that the lifestyle that people had working in the kitchen, like the only way for us to be competitive because of the whole temporary foreign worker program, we lost a lot of, it was really hard to get kitchen staff, really good cooks. Yeah. And so we were like, let's, the only way to be competitive really is to shorten the hours that people work. So add on an extra shift and shorten the hours that people work so they have a life. Right. Wow. I want to send a big thanks out to Carrie Shermans for joining Coastal Front. If you haven't been to Shambar yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. The food inspired by Nico and the energy inspired by Carrie truly makes for one of the best dining atmospheres in the city. Next week, we'll be switching gears with our conversation as I sit down with Yuri Yurafave, a true Bitcoin hodler. We'll be taking a deep dive into the world of Bitcoin as we explore the endless ways in which cryptocurrency could shape our future. Stay tuned and we'll see you next week.